0: Hi guys, thank you so much for joining me. My name is Cassidy Cook, and this podcast is going to showcase my book, Liquid Lineage. In this week's summary, the tension is building a bit now after last week. The Lukers have realized in Chapter 4 that Crane's moratoriums are wholly involuntary. Not only are they involuntary, but they are happening more often and for longer periods of time. Crane is a bit worked up following the realization that it was him in the forest the night before. Nothing could have prepared him for this, and he is now full of questions as to why or how he would do such a thing, like digging a hole in the middle of a wet forest in the middle of the night. Why were his hands filthy? But the hiking boots he left sitting outside of his father's study were spotless. Lachlan and Meredith didn't seem at all phased by this dirty finding. Perplexed, maybe more on target when describing their reactions. However, the lucre children know never to look at their parents and trust fully what they see. It is yet to be known what will come from this bloody discovery, but I can only hope you are as perplexed as the Lukers themselves. Let's get into it. You are listening to Episode 5, Chapter 5. This chapter is titled, Matthew 530. Three of the four shakily stumble up the steps and back into the mansion. All but Lachlan, of course. He wouldn't dare stumble, even in or around his own fortress. It is highly probable that you might find him instead, pacing in his study or tromping around the halls, being stroked by his worldly accomplishments or tormented by his spiritual failures, one of the two. Tonight, his temper seemed to be continuously increasing with every single leaf crunch under his boots during the walk through the trees on their way back to the house. Lachlan's body noticeably stiffened like Crane's so often does when seeing the hole in the ground and hasn't relaxed since. Here is one thing about the Patriarch, Mr. Luker. He loves to struggle. Whatever the certain struggle may be, it doesn't matter to him. He loves the resistance life so naturally produces and the way he is able to hold it one-handed by the neck. Long ago, Lachlan was given an opportunity. A life full of potential, in which he could master either potential greatness or potential malice. Although long ago, Lachlan decided, unsurprisingly, not to choose. He wanted both greatness and malice. He had both in his blood, and he thought choosing one would be no different than choosing half of himself, and cutting a limb from a king is forever unheard of. So, when war was no longer necessary and peace slowly rejuvenated the newly modernized world, two figurative paths emerged out of the yellow wood for Lachlan. He could either go in the direction of peace and progression, or back to his bloody roots without reason. This once pure one refused, early on in life, to deny his DNA in the face of progressivity. And in fact, there was not two separate paths in Lachlan Luker's mind. There was only one path swallowing him whole. Matthew 5.30 drops inside his mind, an intrusive thought he shoves to the back. Keep walking, he thinks voluntarily, but the thought boomerangs to the forefront with vengeance. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. Stop, stop, be quiet, he yells at his brain, though the intruder relents. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Sh! he says out loud accidentally. Meredith pauses in a sudden cold and humid sweat. "'Lock?' she says as her nerves settle and as she brushes Lachlan's bicep. He swivels in her direction, makes eye contact, squints his eyes, and pursues ahead and out of the tree line, leaving Meredith, Mercy, and Crane, as silent and as solid as the trunks that surround them. Without the cloak of the treetops, The rain is now heavier on Lachlan's spine, dampening him and making each step a tad heavier. He trudges around the left side of the house, in the direction of the entrance steps from which they initially came. Huffing up them like the oxygen in this area has become suddenly scarce, possibly due to the lack of trees near the front door, or more likely due to the throbbing heart in his chest, who knows anyway. He is hunched over and visibly moist when he shoves open the intimidatingly large, solid gold door, meeting Rowan, who stands in front of him with his arms wide and shoulders shrugged. "'Where did you go?' he begins to say as Lachlan bulldozes past his eldest. Rowan witnesses his father, lethargic-eyed and nearly falling over his own feet with every scattered step, a little while later followed by Mercy, then Meredith, and last Crane. Realizing clearly that their father is currently in some form of mental anguish, the children know to remain silent until mother speaks. It's safer to wait for Meredith to volunteer the tone after any apparent shifts in the moods of their father. Also traumatized, however, this is not always an easy task for Meredith to complete. It's rare, although tonight she thankfully seemed to do so with flying colors. Crane, Mercy, and Rowan all stand in front of her, turned away, and watching as their father shuts the door to his study without looking back. Meredith pulls Crane and Mercy by their chests closer to her legs and bends down, meeting them at ear level. Let's leave him to his devices and head to the cabinet. What snacks would suffice for this stormy night? She smiles warmly gesturing with a tapping motion on Mercy and Crane's bottoms, the way a mom might in order to kindly demand forward movement from her child. As you enter the mansion, the vast dining and cuisine area is architecturally to the right of the study, however, you won't find much dining done there, at least not by the family as a whole. Nutrients are simply shuffled out of the kitchen and into their own prospective eating quarters dinner time is an ever-revolving door of infinite ease, sprinkled with extradition and tears in your midnight serving of creme brulee. Tonight, however, will be a fun one for the kids because in a matter of seconds, as Lachlan ascends into the study attending to nothing and no one but himself, Meredith decides to pick the weight of the room up and place it on her already shrunken shoulders. Meanwhile, the patriarch leaves his newly hunchback wife and their three children to scavenge for grub like he believes they're supposed to, because in Lachlan's mind, he absolutely provides what he needs to provide and anything outside of that is a cauddle, especially when it comes to his boys. Only, when it comes to his boys, really, Lachlan believes simple things, like a fully stocked pantry or embroidered pajamas, have the ability to breed mushy men. He visualizes the four of them in the heat of his self-induced agony, like snails sliding slowly past to the right of the study door, spreading their goopy insecurities and weaknesses all over his palace. Crane runs first into the cooking area, straight to the sink positioned by the window to wash his hands. Germaphobe, says Rowan under his breath, but loud enough for Mur to hear, which in turn makes her laugh. Waiting by the door of his current cavern, Lachlan listens. For the moment, Meredith brings out the boxes and the bowls. Mercy simultaneously yelps, Cupcakes! When she does this, Thunder mocks her and hits the side of the house, rolling over the top of it like a gel. They can feel as the vibration grows gradient and sounds of bowling balls rolling through the halls hang over their heads. Growing up in a metal mansion such as this one, One must acquire a strong self-reassurance practice when experiencing a thunderstorm. Lightning strikes are drawn to this structure like flies are drawn to honey. The children peer up towards the ceiling, hoping to catch a glimpse of the shaking chandelier, and they successfully catch exactly that. The diamond strands wiggle in each of their faces like a wagging finger of an angry guardian. As they wait for the rumble to float down and ground itself by their feet, Meredith continues bringing out the ingredients they will need to do some baking. Yet another rarity. Not only Meredith spending quality time with her eggs, meaning her children, but baking. Baking is a far and few between occurrence for the Luker family in general, with Rowan being drastically the most gifted in the culinary arts. He's a perfectionist, so truly it shouldn't come as a shock. Equally as unsurprising too are Meredith's lack of skills when it comes to truly any kind of creative or artistic vision. As she prepares the oven for heating, she scoffs at herself for attempting to make something from scratch and thinks, I don't even design my own masks. Lachlan does. So embarking on this endeavor to prove to herself and to her children what an alchemist she can be might be a challenge, but she is, for once it seems, willing to try. Another crack of the god whip, and the oven beeps, exclaiming its readiness to be filled, but first, there are ingredients to be mixed and Mercy wants to help. Rowan and Crane take a seat on the opposing side of the cold gold island, and Meredith slides them a bowl full of a simple icing recipe she made, using powdered sugar, butter, and what was left of the cream cheese. Nothing extravagant. Although the smiles on their faces conjured a strange feeling inside Meredith, something of humanity that may have rubbed off on her today at the science fair from the fleshy public. Have you ever felt different after coming home from an outing? she asks Rowan, Crane, and Mercy, in an attempt to console herself, also offering an opportunity to connect with them on a deeper level. What do you mean? Mercy asks. Curious as ever, but this was not the response Meredith was hoping for. She was hoping they would know what she meant without needing clarification. And now, feeling further from her children than before, she reverts to her usual bitter tone. I'm not sure. As she licks the liquid cake off her pinky and turns to put the eggs back in the fridge, she says, The people down there seem to shed. No? Pivoting back to face Crane and Rowan, she meets their blank expressions, puts both wide palms on the countertop, and waits for acknowledgment. Crane sees something in her left iris, something that catches his spirit and holds it hostage, demanding agreement for ransom, so he agrees. I know. I know what you mean. When we went to Black Manor, I came home and didn't feel myself for days. Meredith stands still unnervingly still, staring into her troubled son, battling an internal war against her rising emotions. "'Yeah,' she says, rapidly unraveling the dry rag she was fiddling with while he was talking, then wringing it out in the sink for no apparent purpose. She flings it over Mercy's shoulder, who is dipping her finger into the bowl of chalky brown-looking fluid. "'I'll be right back, kids. Rowan, maybe try helping a little?' Mercy will need assistance pouring this into the pan without spilling it. She runs her hand over the top of Mercy's head, kissing her where her hair is parted, straight down the middle, and walking in the direction of the study about thirty feet to the left towards the hallway leading out of the dining room. Crane waits for her to dissolve around the distant corner before getting up to follow her. Rowan and Mercy are too distracted by the mess they're making while trying to fill the cupcake mold and don't notice a thing missing. Rowan is growing furiously paranoid due to the cake batter backsplash that Mercy is using to unintentionally paint the floors and the tops of the island, getting most of the mixture on the upper fold of the cupcake pan rather than the inside of the actual well, while Crane quietly creeps behind the edge of an outer center room wall and watches Meredith as she gently pushes open the already slightly ajar door to the study fully expecting to see Lachlan either exit upon her arrival or overhear him tell her forcibly to leave him be. There would be none of that, though, because when Meredith entered the study, Crane could actually see how still her shoulders and her ribs were. She wasn't breathing and soon upon arrival left without a single sign of Lachlan, that is, except for the diary laying on his desk. Once she read it, Crane saw that the hunt is on for his father when Meredith persists out of the study and heads toward the grand staircase. Grubbing the handrail at the bottom of the steps, she uses it as leverage and flies in a half circle with her robe in the air, creating momentum as she floats up the golden stairs planning to check the master bedroom. Crane takes this opportunity without thinking twice, what's more perfect than when both of his parents are in conflict, out of sight, and the usually loud study door remains tauntingly open. Crane takes this time to act and act swiftly, before Rowan and Mercy potentially notice his absence, call for him, and alert to his mother. He waits until he can no longer see Meredith, shuffles down the entry hall leading straight to the door to the study, and enters with great care, although sound is not a true worry tonight because the thunder seems to be on his side. The caution is habitual. He would slip in and immediately see his father's journal laying on the desk underneath the skylight which is being periodically lit by lightning. Crane wouldn't dare open the diary, but luckily he wouldn't have to. It was already open. Sprawled wide, he feels the book begin calling on him to read the most recent entry, which is written in scribbles that are barely legible, but his heart starts throbbing regrettably when he begins to read the messy words Lachlan wrote just moments before. Quote Never before has one as pure of heart as Mercy breathed an ounce of life in its lungs, let alone kept as precious on purpose. I have searched. We have found nothing, and the forest has turned red due to my failures. There is a wickedness in that place now, a wickedness more treacherous than any, a wickedness that looks innocent. I need to get rid of it. I say there are demons that whisper angelically. That evil with a beautiful smile in that forest lives everything I thought was true yet of lies. Do they all belong to me? Quote, After reading this newly composed paragraph, the first and only thing Crane could think is about how thirsty he is. His mouth felt astonishingly dry, so he turned away from the desk in the center of this circular room and went to acquire the mysterious brass key from earlier. The shattered pieces still scatter the floor, somewhat hidden, though, behind the large pile of rocks. It's probably safe to say that Lachlan hadn't even noticed. Crane looks at the key in his right hand and puts it in his coat pocket, before peering out of the study, looking both ways, left, right, and left again. Once the coast was clear, he made his way nonchalantly into the chaotic kitchen and back to help his siblings. Mission accomplished. Hi guys. So I genuinely thought that this episode was going to be much, much longer. (laughs) I don't know what happened. It ended up being shorter than chapter four. But nevertheless, we keep progressing forward. And my promise I am making to you is that I will never stop trying to improve. I'm not going to give up. Remaining consistent is a huge obstacle that I am learning to overcome with this project. And you all are helping me do that. So I want to thank you. I really, really appreciate it. So to wrap it all up, again, my name is Cassidy Cook. Thank you all so so much for listening, and until next time, stay solid. See ya!